1: We are so lucky to have with us today in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios, Corey Schultz, President and Chief Executive Officer of Teva Pharmaceutical. It is the manufacturer of about one in ten drugs that people in the United States take. So uh, this is a very, very important company to the US drug industry. Uh, Mr. Schultz, thank you so much for being here. Today, uh, Teva shares are being punished for a forecast that came in under Wall Street estimates. You have said that this is going to be a trough year for just going forward for the company. What gives you confidence that this really is the bottom?
2: It's uh, all to the dynamics of our revenues. We have a dynamic where we have had a very successful product in multiple sclerosis called Copaxon. This product has now got generic competition since a bit more than a year. So we have declining revenues of this product. And it was a multi-billion dollar product. So it's declining. At the same time, we've successfully launched new and exciting products, a product called Osteto for Huntington's disease and tardive dyskinesia, where you have movement disorders, and we've just launched a which is a fantastic new product that can help people suffering from chronic migraine to y- reduce their migraine days with, on average, 50%, or for some people, 75, 100% reduction in migraine. These new products will, of course, be driving increased revenues. So you could say it's really the mathematics of the slope of the decline of Copaxon versus the growth of astero and Ajovi. And there it's just pretty obvious, if you look at the numbers, that there's a bigger drag from Copaxon downwards this year than there's growth from the two new products. But next year, the drag from Copaxon goes down. It's like a mathematical thing. You lose like 45% every year, but the absolute number, of course, gets less and less. So, So that's really why. So talk about the core generic
0: business for Teva. Been in a decline for the industry. What is your sense of the decline, the secular decline uh, that the market should be discounting in the core generic business and whether that differs for you?
2: Yeah, so that's a great question. The market has, over the last, I would say, five years, probably halved. So the total uh, value of the U.S. generic market has gone to half. This is not because of volume. Volume is increasing. More than 9 out of 10 products being taken in the U.S. every day are generics. So the volume has been increasing, but the pricing has been coming down. Now, when I joined um, a bit more than a year ago, it was quite clear to me that the U.S. generic business was in what I would call a death spiral of decrease prices if you're in a situation like that then the market leader needs to take action and explain to the customers that you cannot just take prices down below manufacturing cost you cannot sustain a business where you're losing money so I went out a bit more than a year ago explained to the marketplace and to our customers that we have roughly 10% of our products here in the US where we sell billions of products every year that are losing money and this is not a sustainable strategy for any business
1: This is really interesting, especially at a time when both parties in Washington, D.C. would like to see drug prices reduced further. How much pressure are you getting from them? And how realistic is it to you that we will see some sort of uh, general reduction in pricing uh, market-wide?
2: Yeah, of course. Here we really have to remember the enormous differences in pricing in pharmaceuticals. So if you take an innovative bio-pharmaceutical product, it might cost something like two three four thousand dollars a month if you take a typical generic it might cost three four cents a day so i mean it's it's a it's a phenomenal difference in pricing that you have and the prices we see on generics you could say the problem might be that the price of a tablet a generic tablet a day let's say generic libertor it drops from being you know 20 cents to being 18 cents and all of a sudden it's not economical to manufacture it anymore same thing goes for things like anti-infectives and so on. And it's very important to have steady supplies for the patients. It's very important to have high quality of all these very cheap medications. So I would say the pricing discussion going on in the U.S. right now politically is not really about the generic pricing. that That's so dirt cheap, actually. So it's there it's more about quality and sustainable supplies to the safety of patients. So what we, what we did was we said, okay, we want to be the world's best supplier in terms of sustainability of supply and quality. And it's not sustainable if we start manufacturing and selling below the manufacturing cost. We had a good debate with our customers. We went out of some products, some products we had a price adjustment, but the most important thing, getting back to your initial question was that this helps stabilize the whole business because we're the market leader. So what we see now is a situation where the total value of generics has stabilized That does not mean that the individual product does not have a decreasing price, as you see more competition. It just means that the new products that go off patent, where we get generics into the market, the new generics coming in offset the decline on price on the older ones, so that the total value of the market, you could say, is stable. And that's a big change. So, Mr. Schultz, quickly in 30 seconds,
0: what is the future of Teva in terms of products? Is it branded products, is it biosimilars, or is it still trying to be
2: first to market with the generics? It's a combination of being leader in generics, including first to market, where we're the best in the world, and at the same time, becoming a leader in biopharmaceuticals. And when I say biopharmaceuticals, it's a combination of innovative, new biopharmaceuticals in areas where we have expertise, such as pain, CNS, neurology, respiratory, And at the same time, using this skill base to make biosimilar products in the areas we know about. So we believe with our unique, very broad skill base in upscaling, development, clinical testing, launch of products, that we have a very strong future.
0: Mr. Schultz, thank you so very much for joining us in studio today. Schultz is the president and chief executive officer of Teva Pharmaceuticals. He joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Thank you so
1: much. Really interesting and important point when we talk about drug pricing and lowering the cost. Uh, the question of how do you also foster a healthy generics market at a time when an increasing number of the population does rely on this market, at a time when it's the other drugs yep. where the emphasis really needs to be. I mean, it's sort of a, it shows the complication of this debate.
0: It and it's just one of the many layers of healthcare that in this country we continue to debate uh, day in and day out. So we're very happy to have uh, Mr. Schultz here with us. We have some good news coming out of Puerto Rico. Looks like Puerto Rico's record bankruptcy advanced this week when a federal judge approved a plan to restructure more than $17 billion in sales tax bonds, the biggest step yet in the island's almost two year effort to slash its massive debt and exit court protection. To help us dive into the details here, we are joined in our Bloomberg 11.30 studios by uh, Matt Rodrigue, Managing Director at Miller Buckfire, a Stiefel company. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. This seems like a very good deal for the senior bondholders. How good was it?
3: Thanks, Paul. Uh, Terrific question. Before we dive into the details, just taking a step back, this is the largest municipal bankruptcy exit ever, Uh, $17.6 billion, larger than the city of Detroit, There are actually two bankruptcies. There is the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico bankruptcy and the COFINA bankruptcy. This resolves the COFINA credit and really sets the stage for the Commonwealth to go forward uh, and restructure its debt.
1: To be clear, COFINA being bonds that are backed by sales tax and and, and revenues that the government gets rather than just general obligation bonds, right?
3: Exactly, exactly. COFINA is backed by the sales and use tax. Uh, and in terms of the recoveries, you know, seniors, including accrued interest, got 95 cents in the dollar and subordinate cofinas got 58 cents in the dollar. And, you know, taking a, a look at everything that's happened, uh, you know, all of the economic challenges that Puerto Rico has had, uh, all of the fiscal challenges, uh, a once in a 100 year hurricane for the senior bondholders to receive 95 cents. I think it really speaks to the strength of having good bonds, senior bonds backed by a solid collateral stream. Uh, and, you know, 95 cents, uh, pe- people are generally happy. There was 99.5% approval of the bankruptcy plan for the seniors.
1: So this has got to be a huge victory for you. You are the lead financial advisor for senior Cofina bondholders, right? Uh, and this was the largest organized group. And we know it's been like herding cats when it comes to uh, Puerto Rico's $74 billion of debt and trying to get the different parties kind of teamed up on the same side. I'm just wondering going forward, uh, how involved are some of the investors who you represent going to stay in Puerto Rico and how many are going to cash out and say, never doing that again?
3: Yeah, it's been like herding cats on a roller coaster, in fact. (laughs) Uh, It's really
1: fun. You've had a great couple of years.
3: Yeah. uh, You know, I mean, between uh, the promesa law, which was passed, uh, then the bankruptcy, the hurricane, uh, deals coming together, falling apart, it's been quite a ride. Look, I think investors are are very pleased with the Kofina deal I mentioned. Ninety nine and a half percent voting in favor. I think they're LPs, uh, so the investors in their funds should be even happier because they got a very good outcome. And this is very good for the people of Puerto Rico. This settlement turns over forty six percent of the dedicated sales tax that was previously going to Kofina to the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico. That represents 17 billion dollars over the next 40 years.
1: A lot of people disagree with that though. There has been pushback within Puerto Rico saying that this is uh, going to hamper the government's ability to rebuild going forward just because it does take half of the sales tax revenues and puts them in the hands of the creditors. What gives you confidence that that's not the case?
3: Puerto Rico needs to reaccess capital markets, and this deal sets Puerto Rico up to do that. So even though it's taking some tax revenue and using it to pay bondholders, uh, it really sets Puerto Rico up to reaccess capital markets and to raise money. There's $12 billion of new debt that was issued yesterday uh, in connection with the com- the closing of the bankruptcy transaction, and there's a basket of $7 billion of additional debt that can be issued right away, uh, and that may very well be currency to resolve the commonwealth bankruptcy. It could also be used to raise capital to do other things on the island. So Matt, I know you, I'm know i sure
0: you spent a lot of time on the island of Puerto Rico the last several years working on this transaction. How is the Puerto Rican economy
3: right now? Yeah, it's actually doing really well right now. Uh, and a lot of people are surprised to hear that because you know they saw pictures of all the challenges after the hurricane, and no doubt, uh, it's been a challenging situation with the hurricane. But right now on the ground in Puerto Rico, there's a lot of private insurance money that's coming in. There's a lot of federal money that's coming in to rebuild and reconstruct the island. And there's more work than people can do. So previously, there was 12% unemployment in Puerto Rico. Now it's down to 7%. Uh, There's an enormous amount of economic activity going on. uh, And the central government is actually running a surplus for the first time in many years.
1: So I guess that one question I have is how much of this is reliant on the federal government continuing to uh, release some of the funding that it's promised to Puerto Rico, and how much of this is just sort of organic growth?
3: So Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory, and it benefits from FEMA just like any U.S. state. And so if there were a hurricane anywhere in the mainland U.S., FEMA would come in and help rebuild and reconstruct, and that's what's happening in Puerto Rico. Uh, It is an important part of the process. Puerto Rico's infrastructure prior to this was very challenged. And one of the goals with the reconstruction is to build that infrastructure back and to build it better, right? And so it's, it's a critical part of the process. Uh, and you know that's happening at the same time that the permesa Oversight Board is implementing reforms. Uh, this permesa process that Congress set up is working. Uh, and, you know, the two processes are playing out in tandem, and the island's doing very well right now. So what are the next
0: steps for Puerto Rico and the bankruptcy, emerging from, from bankruptcy? The senior Kofina bondholders
3: seem to be uh, that issue is addressed. What's, what are next steps? Yeah, so Kofina is done, uh, $17.6 billion restructured. I think there's going to be- Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> You're like, I don't
1: have to touch that again. <laughs> thank
3: you. There's going to be a large focus in 2019 on restructuring the Commonwealth. Uh, th- that part of the government is still in bankruptcy. uh, And that's going to be the next area of focus.
1: Are you going to stay involved at all personally?
3: We'll see. I mean, my current assignment is done, uh, but we have a lot of relationships and we've been involved for a long time, so. Do
1: you think that the deal that Puerto Rico struck with COFINA is going to make it more difficult for them to strike a deal with the general obligation bondholders?
3: I actually think it's going to make it easier so i mentioned there's a seven billion dollar basket of cofina that can be used to issue subordinate debt right away i think that may be currency that could be used in the geo restructuring there's also clarity on what Kofina is going forward it has uh like absolute ownership of a portion of the dedicated sales tax there's no question or doubt that Kofina owns that tax it's been adjudicated by the title three bankruptcy court uh, and bondholders have a statutory lien that runs in favor of those sales taxes. It's a settled question now. And I think with that question being settled, it really sets the stage to restructure the GO debt.
0: So Matt, you've spent a lot of time on Puerto Rico and, and, what, if you were to guess is the government's three to five year plan to kind of really shore up the, the financial situation so that they can have access to capital, they can rebuild, they can grow. Uh, what's kind of the current
3: thinking? So the reconstruction effort from the hurricane is still ongoing, and that's actually going to take up to a decade. A lot of people don't realize how long uh, it takes to really deploy uh, the capital and to rebuild after one of these major events. Uh, Even now, New Jersey is just winding down its rebuilding effort from Hurricane Sandy. Uh, It took Louisiana a long time to recover from its hurricanes. Uh, And so that reconstruction effort is going to go on for a long time. Uh, Also uh, the Promesa Oversight Board is in the process of implementing reforms there's still work to be done, uh, but I think they can really set up Puerto Rico to thrive over the next several decades.
1: All right. Well, I guess that I'm going to have to uh, go down and do some on-the-ground investigation uh, on the beach to make sure that it really is uh, getting up to speed. Matt Roderick, thank you so much for being with us. Matt Roderick, Managing Director of Miller Buckfire, which is a default company. He was the lead financial advisor and negotiator for the senior Kofina bondholders. That sinking in your in your stomach right now, that is the feeling of April 15th rolling around tax season. And the question is, will your taxes be higher or lower this year? Joining us to let us know and do our taxes on air, Joe Perry, tax leader at Markham. Uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studios, Joe, so happy to have you.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: We've heard so many reports about tax rebates being lower, about people's individual taxes being higher in the wake of the tax changes that President Trump has made. What's the truth here?
4: Well, it really depends on your circumstances. I think in many cases, people will be surprised, uh, mostly to the downside. Um, What I realize is people forget that the withholdings that they had on their wages actually increased their take-home pay. And when you ask them, do you remember how much it increased? They forget. But now when they're getting a refund and the refund's less, they don't couple the two. So really, it it really depends. Um, You know, this year was the first year that they estimated what the withholding was going to be. And that's difficult. All these years, you knew what your income was. You could adjust the Form W-4 that has the withholding. So you could right set that. So at the end of the year, if you wanted a refund, many people use a refund as a way of savings. That would be fine. But the issue is, is that with the new law, you could have two taxpayers that make the same amount of money and one could get a $10,000 refund and one could owe 10000 So it really is disparate in uh, where it is. So planning is important. So, Joe... Planning is important, but for
0: all of our listeners in the tri-state New York area, the high-taxed tri-state New York area, one of the big changes with the new tax uh, legislation was the inability or the reduction, the I guess the the inability to deduct local and state taxes. How has that impacted um, tax receipts? Uh, for various entities?
4: Well, it's been reported by uh, uh, public officials that uh, the revenues have been down to to the extent of uh, $2 billion. And I I think part of it, it's being portrayed that part of it is because high um, wealthy people are leaving the state you know, in our client base, uh, we're a very large firm in Long Island, uh, largest firm in Long Island, large firm in New York City. We don't see it in our client base. Many of our clients came to us and wanted to know the consequences of doing so, but people don't leave because of taxes. It's more about family, their jobs. So what what we more see is that you know, it's really three factors. One, revenues are down because if you look at the Wall Street, right, they had a rocky road last year. They didn't make as much money as they did. So people that worked on Wall Street actually made less wages and therefore had less withholding. We saw that when we did projections. Second is there was a double dip in bonuses in 2017. Companies decided to pay what they would normally pay a bonus in 18. They paid it in 17. Why? They wanted to take advantage of the higher rate. There was a higher rate that you get the deduction 35 versus 21. So and the other big factor is many people used to you know, and we advise our clients to actually pay their estimated payment fourth quarter in December so you would be able to get a deduction. It's actually due in January. Now, with the lack of deduction, it's only limited to $10,000, and that's state and local income taxes and real estate. So, once you get past that threshold, and many of our clients are past that with just real estate taxes alone, um, then you want to defer that. So, and, and the idea is you know, there's talk, as uh, been reported. I think the governor of New York is going to meet with. Uh, uh, the President Trump, and uh, he's going to make the pitch to repeal that. The problem is there's about a $60 billion gap uh, each year in terms of filling filling the gap of revenue so it's going to be a hard sell you need another revenue generator Um, so we'll have to see what happens in that regard
1: so the irs came out with a report that refunds were down by about eight percent this year as a result of some of the tax changes the treasury department seemed to refute that on twitter what's the reality here yeah
4: I, i think there's really two reasons why one is the irs got a late start I think, I think that's important. Uh, and Because of the government shutdown. Because of the government shutdown to some degree. I, I think also with the changes in the law, and um, the IRS is not funded that well, it, it really created a problem. And, and we're still looking for guidance.
1: Well, and I wonder if something else you were talking about with companies estimating or trying to uh, estimate how much money to withhold, have they gotten it wrong to the downside? In other words, have they been withholding on average less than they should based on all of the changes?
4: It depends on your expectations, right? If people want money during the year because you need the cash, they wouldn't get it wrong if they withheld. But if to the extent that they owe more at the end of the year, and I think more people are owing or getting less of a refund. So I I, I think that that is true. But then how do you balance it with the fact that there's less revenues that are coming in and down 8%? So I think it's going to work its way out as we progress. You know, many, many of our clients, there's so many unknowns in the law, it's amazing. One of the statistics is with the last uh, act, the 86 Act that was major, it took 12 years to get all of the information so you understood what the law meant you know, we're getting rules that are sent to us 200 pages and we have to digest that and understand that. So it, it's really complicated. So we're we're actually advising our clients to extend their tax returns. So that way, as more information comes out, we're able to make the right judgments for them with them.
0: So what percentage of the average individual filer actually makes the April 15th deadline and how many people just blow past it or maybe seek an extension? And are, th- are there any trends there?
4: Yeah, yeah, there is. The large majority like to get the return done by April 15th. Most of the time, they like to file it by April 14th or 15th. They like to wait last minute. Who wants to deal with taxes? Um, but it, th- there are demographics, especially if you're uh, invested in financial, uh, you, you have a big portfolio. Generally, you do have to wait until after April 15th.
1: Is your sense that in general uh, taxes have gone down for each individual, they just might not be realizing it based on the way that the withholdings work and the rebates work? It's
4: it's an interesting question. If I had to guess, I would say, you know, generally speaking, and again, everybody's different, if you, you made under 200,000 and you have kids, you probably are gonna do better. If you're between 200 and 400, you're probably, depends on your real estate taxes before and state taxes, um, you're, you're probably just about right. Um, and then anything beyond that, you're probably paying more in taxes. Um, I, I know we did some calculations for some of the public officials. Uh, and when we did those calculations, we had their last year return, which was public. Um, and then what we did was project the benefit. Most of them did have an average of eight to $10,000 of a, a lesson tax and their income was around the two hundred to three hundred thousand dollar mark.
0: Joe Perry, thank you so much. As we approach April 15th, maybe I'll be speaking to you before April 15th. Um, (laughs) Joe Perry, tax leader at Markham, just kind of giving us a sense, uh, Lisa, I think of kind of all the changes that have taken place, um, you know, with the tax code, the President Trump's tax code. I think individuals are trying to get a sense of, you know, what it means for uh, them going forward. How much money they have. Yeah, how much money. I mean, am I getting money back? uh, How much more am I going to pay? I think it's a lot of uncertainty, but we'll see. So, Well, it looks like geopolitical uncertainties that have whipsawed the markets over the past couple of months are beginning to come into focus to help us peel back that onion let's bring in hugh johnson hugh is a chairman and chief investment officer of hugh johnson advisors based in albany new york hugh thanks so much for joining us let's start with china the u.s trade delegation is in beijing looks like some progress is being made um what are your thoughts on the latest in china
5: well I think it's, uh, Paul, I think right at the top of the list is you have to recognize, and I think we all do recognize, that that both China and the U.S., or really Trump, have a lot to lose if there's a breakdown or a failure of these negotiations. First of all, China, as you know, the economy is under a lot of pressure. Uh, They export $5 billion, uh, uh, $500 billion to the U.S. each year. That's an important part of their economy. They can't afford to lose that. They can't afford to have that even diminished. So they have a lot to see success. And of course, in the case of Trump, he wants to see China import a great deal more at the top of the list his agricultural products, soybeans. You hear about that all the time. And to him, of course, that's important in trying to secure the, uh, the vote of the farmers uh, as we look at two, two 2020. So you know, both have a lot to lose. I think that's the reason to feel there's going to be success, and that's also the reason why I think Trump is willing to have a postponement of that March 1st deadline. So I think we're looking at the, the end of March, and the, and the U.S. may not get all of it at once, but it'll certainly get some sort of a deal by the end of March or at least in the near future. So I think those are going along. Those, those talks are really don't concern me. They're going along quite well, and I think the markets reflect that.
1: Hugh, as an investor, how much do you focus on macro events like trade talks that are on again, off again, on again, who knows again, uh, versus just the specific corporate uh, reports that we're getting out and, and just other sort of very idiosyncratic issues?
5: That's a great question, Lisa, and I think the answer to that question is I don't focus on the macro, sort of the political, geopolitical stuff, unless it's going to have an impact, a significant impact that I can measure on the U.S. economy and earnings on the one hand and, of course, on Federal Reserve policy or interest rates on the other hand. The things that really matter to me in in trying to decide whether I should be positive or negative on the stock market are really interest rates on the one side and, and earnings on the other side. And quite frankly, I I look at this stuff, I I take it seriously, but I'm only worried or concerned about it or integrate it when I I can quantify the impact it's going to have on what really matters and what really matters are earnings and interest rates.
0: Well, Hugh, let's go to that issue. On the interest rates, it looks like the Fed is uh, on the sidelines, so perhaps investors Mm -hmm. are Maybe taking a closer look at earnings. We're about three quarters of the way through the fourth quarter earnings season. What have you taken out of this earnings season to either make you more or less constructive on the equity markets?
5: Well, well I think you've got to take two things out. Is first of all, the earnings, the earnings season was pretty good. I mean, seventy percent of the companies beating expectations. That part's good. But the forward guidance, as you know, is not very good, and as a result of that. Uh, Both for 2019 and 2020, I've been bringing down estimates for the S&P 500, and I do that just about every day as I see a new uh, forward guidance. So earnings estimates are coming down. The second thing is, of course, as you know, on the other side of the equation, the interest rate side of the equation, everybody's expecting the Federal Reserve to kind of hold. I expect, along with a lot of other folks, that they're going to raise interest rates at least one time in 2019. I have that at mid-year. So we've got an improved outlook for interest rates. They'll be going up, but not as much. And we have, let's say, a somewhat deteriorating outlook for uh, earnings. The the growth rate of earnings in 2019-20 are going to be uh, a little bit softer than we had thought. You put those two things together and you say, we've got some, we're okay now. The configuration is okay now. I think when it gets a little bit problematic... Is when interest rates get to a little bit higher level, and then we get to sort of the first quarter of 2020, then I think the stock market is not going to have enough in the way of earnings to offset. The uh, rise that we're going to see, even though modest, in interest rates.
1: So, in the meantime, you paint a pretty constructive picture of the U.S. economy, and as such, some of the stocks that you seem to be favoring are in the consumer staples industries, as well as uh, as healthcare. So, somewhat conservative, but also relying on steady growth in the economy. So, which names are you looking at in particular?
5: Yeah, that, that's a great. that's a more another good question, Lisa. To be honest with you, uh, we're looking at kind of consumer staples, healthcare stocks, and uh, the communication service services side of the ledger and the reason we're looking at that so carefully is because of something I just mentioned and that is that it's clear that the economy is slowing in the process of 2019 and in the process also earnings slowing. So you try to find companies that are going to give us some somewhat reliable growth rates in earnings. In the in the consumer staples area I would I would suggest everybody take a look at Walmart. Uh, in in the in the healthcare area, there's a there's an awful lot of uh, c- uh, companies in the healthcare area, and in the consumer c- commu- in the communications services uh, area. Uh, take a look at the ETF which represents the communication services. There's a lot of volatile companies in communication services, Facebook being an example. And in order to try, I think you have to get diversification. You have to have representation in communication services, but the best way to do that is to buy the exchange traded funds. So those, yeah. are, those are three areas where I would take a a, a a very very hard look. And I think you can, uh, I think you can buy those now in a in a positive equity market environment.
1: Hugh Johnson, thank you so much for being with us. Hugh Johnson is chairman and chief investment officer of Hugh Johnson Advisors in Albany, New York.